0: Hello, this is Mary Cole and the Good Story Podcast, helping writers craft a good story. With me, you will hear from thought leaders related to writing, and sometimes not, about topics important to writers of all categories and ability levels. Here is to telling a good story. Uh, welcome to the Story Mastermind workshop. Today we have Laura Sebastian, author of the Ash Princess series, uh, which now has three books, right? Three books. Yep, it's, it's completed. She is uh, reaching us from London. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Laura?
1: Yeah, um, so I am an author. Uh, I've been writing since I was 16 I think Ash Princess was my 10th completed book and my first published book so it was a long publishing road it felt like everyone before got a little further along the road and then um yeah and then I got lucky that I got to publish all three books which was which is a milestone in and of itself and um Yeah, the the series is about uh, a young queen named Theodosia who's been held hostage since she was six years old and her country was taken over. Um, And it's about her slowly realizing that no one's going to save her and that if she's going to get out of this terrible situation and save her country, she has to start figuring out how to save herself. I also have uh, have two books coming out. Um, The first is an adult fantasy that's out next summer called Half Sick of Shadows, which uh, is an Arthurian retelling of The Lady of Shalott. And um, that's, that's a kind of a funny one to talk about because that was the first book that I finished.
0: Oh, so some of those, some of those nine manuscripts that went into a drawer actually hopped out again. <laughs> I mean, I think this is going to be the only one that does, but yeah, but yeah,
1: so it's kind of funny to talk about that. And then I have a new YA series that's going to start at the beginning of 2022 about uh, triplet princesses who have been raised to uh, marry the princes of the surrounding kingdoms and take over the entire continent.
0: Very cool. And so it sounds like some historical settings are an inspiration for you. Yeah. Oh,
1: definitely. Um, Ash princess is very much um, ancient Greece and, and ancient Rome inspired with uh, Vikings thrown in for fun. Um, and uh, the, the new YA series is a little bit more, uh, it's a little mixed, because I'm drawing from uh, stories all through history, because that's kind of my, my go-to for inspiration, um, but I think setting wise it's, it's very much 17th century uh, Europe. And then Arthurians. That's an interesting thing, because we, we've run into this with my editor, because it doesn't really exist at any specific time, and that was intentional, because I think uh, Arthurian mythology has shifted with every new... Uh, retelling of it. And so um, I'm drawing primarily from Tennyson where it's Victorian times. So it's really, it kind of takes on the values of the Victorian era. So it's, it's a lot of that, but it's also, there's some, some modern touches, I think, to it too, that kind of make it relevant today as well.
0: Well I, I'm actually really excited because this this sounds like very fertile ground for a lot of kind of meaty world building discussion. Um, and we do have somebody in our group who's uh, historic uh, historical inflected uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, so so let's let's kind of come down from above uh, the the big picture view. When you get an idea, is it? Are you, is it the period that inspires you? Is it some legend? Is it, is it some mythology? How do you sort of get within reach of your ideas?
1: Um, so for me, it always starts with character. Um, I actually come from an acting background. So I've been acting since childhood. So, um, and my favorite thing to do with acting was always building the character. And so uh, I always start off with motivation and trying to figure out what the character wants and what they're willing to take to get that and uh, that's usually where like the the first seed of the story comes from and so world building for me kind of fills in as i go along i'm very much a a pantser i do not really plan anything as i go um so i uh sorry i just got the dog treats here to keep them keep them occupied um so yeah so i i very much plan things as i go and as i draft as i go through the drafting phases um i like to think of it as painting um my first draft is very much a sketch there's not a lot of world building detail in it and it's as I go through for sequential drafts that I tend to uh, add a little bit more definition and shading and color um and that's when it really I think comes to life and I think that's a good way to uh, avoid info dumping because if you if you put it all in during the first draft it's tend to clump it tends to clump together but I think if you do it a little bit at a time, it tends to uh, be easier for the reader to digest as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're definitely talking about, <clears throat> you know, how how to avoid getting it all down in the first chapter, you know, sending the story to a screeching halt before it even begins and kind of when, when the, um, the big elements of world building need to be sort of established by so that you can sort of run with the story, but I'm actually surprised to hear that you're a pantser. Uh, Can you tell me more about uh, how that works with something as logical and kind of, you know, that I tend to think of as like, pre thought out as world building. The,
1: The fun thing I, the thing I really, really like about, about pantsing is that it's very much, um, uh, Playing the what if game, which I think it was a game my parents played with me when I was a kid, when I didn't understand the consequences of my actions, they like taught me to play the what if game, um, which <laughs> says a lot about me as a child that I did not um, naturally think of others. But uh, but yeah, so I that tends to be what happens when I when I go through my drafting. I'll be like, oh okay, so this seems to. Um, I think with the magic system specifically it was okay, so what does this world look like because these people have magic? How wide, So how widespread is the magic? Um, and what does that mean for the average person's day-to-day life? Um, and so the more you ask those questions and the more you can answer them yourself, I think the more real the world starts to feel for you and for the reader. Um, and so we ran into that a bit with my second book because uh, we had... Um, the first book is very focused in one land that has magic. And so, as I said, it's very, um, ancient, uh, ancient Greece inspired. Um, and then in the second book, they go to a different country where no one has magic. And so I had to start to think about what, how that world, even though they exist in the same time, how it would have progressed differently. And, uh, you know, the answer is that they have more, um, scientific, uh, discoveries under their belts because because they' haven't been able to rely on magic so they've had to figure out ways like uh, the example I always use is um, one of the one of the groups of people who have magic in um, in the first country is uh, a, a water based magic so they can summon and create and, and manipulate water and so uh, but the, when I was thinking about how that would affect this country where there is no magic it made sense that they would have Figured out a way to have indoor plumbing um, because they don't have that easy. Uh, snap my fingers and water appears—magic. They have to kind of figure out how to compensate for it. Um, so I think it's about it's about asking those questions and kind of kind of brainstorming and. Figuring out how to answer them in the book,
0: and so when you think about establishing rules like that, for example, you know, obviously, one world uh, you can summon water. In another world, you need to, you know, work within the framework of realistic water. Um, so I know that you you sort of come up with stuff as as you go along, but what's your what's your read on? the amount of rules that makes sense to create a world that feels immersive, you know, cause you can go very minimal and then readers are confused. You can go completely overboard and readers will just be swimming in information. So how do you, how do you kind of find that line of what's enough to sort of build a story on foundational?
1: So I think that's something that, um, that really comes in getting other people reading because uh, I think that was something that that really uh, was a challenge for me. And as I mentioned, I wrote nine books before this one. And I think the the issue I always ran into was that I was not um, someone who was comfortable sharing my work with others. So I, I think it kind of stopped the progress in a lot of ways. Um... So once I started getting other people reading it and they could be like, oh, so this magic thing, you have a, a conflict here. Like it doesn't make sense um, or I'm not getting enough of this or I'm getting too much. And so I think that that's something that really comes from getting um, the opinions of people you trust.
0: And do you ever go further into the story and then change the rules or bend the rules or reverse the rules?
1: Yes. Um, so that was something that uh, it was really helpful. My editor. Uh, really gave me very tight deadlines for my first book. And um, it was tough, but I'm really glad she did because uh, I had drafts, first drafts of all three books done before the first book came out. So I was able to kind of make some last minute changes and like make sure everything worked, which I think was pretty invaluable.
0: Mm Was it, um, so you knew it was going to be a trilogy right away? Was that, you know, part of the sale that you were able to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was hoping. I think there's always that chance that it won't work out. Um, And so my agent wanted to sell it as a series. And by that point, I think I was a little bit... uh, a little bit scarred from my previous attempts and i was like yeah it'll be a series sure i wish i had to outline them very vaguely so i think my first the, the my puzzle for the second book was like maybe a page um where i said i had like some idea of what would happen and then i got to the third book and it was barely a paragraph i was just like they go places things happen to them there's a battle and the end and that was kind of all I really had. And luckily my editor trusted me with that um, because I, like I said, I just, I'm really terrible at planning things.
0: I think that is really, because we um, we had a conversation with uh, an author who was really strict into outlining. So it's really interesting to hear, you know, the, the other perspective. Um, let me ask you this. So let's take a look at, how you find your information and how you sort of cherry pick. Um, If you didn't, if you weren't familiar with a certain mythology, like you said, you know, mixing mythologies, that's my thing, right? How, how, so you have your character, you have maybe some idea of a story, you know, there are these triplets and they're going to, you know, they're going to be forced into marriage and, um, then when it's time to layer in the world, how do you, how do you enter just the sheer amount of research and kind of sourcing and uh, yeah. Yeah. How do you approach
1: that? You know, I just, I love research books. I love reading um, historical books. So it's usually, I have a few like go-to authors that I really like. And so usually um, if one of them hasn't covered what I'm looking for, I kind of just do a, do a little bit of, of research and try to find something that's along the lines of what I'm looking for. Um, I can't remember the name and unfortunately I don't have any of my books with me because they're still somewhere, somewhere in the oh, Atlantic. Atlantic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, there's a book called, um, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but it was about specifically about, uh, Empress Maria Therese and, uh, who is the, the Empress of Bohemia, I believe. Um, and, uh, she had a lot of kids that she (laughs) married off into various advantageous situations that benefited her country and they all had these like terrible lives. Um, so it was like, so yeah, so it was, uh, it was, it's thanks mom. Yeah. The, the most famous of those children was, uh, Marie Antoinette and actually Marie Antoinette was the, uh, was the second daughter who was supposed to marry, uh. King Louis. The first one died like right before the wedding and so Marie Antoinette had to like step up and like...
0: Which one got the better end of that bargain? (laughs) And they're all like, they all have such terrible, they've all had such like terrible, terrible fates. So you have, uh, you've found some historical inspiration. Now it sounds like you maybe took an interesting character element from that, the mother's ambition, and you added it to your what-if pile. Um, But... Ordinarily, like how closely might you hew to borrowing from history or do you just use that as inspiration and then you put your own spin on it
1: oh I think it's very it has to be very much a jumping off point unless you're writing like actual historical fiction um because otherwise I think you get into all these all these tricky factual inconsistencies and I think especially when you're when you're writing fantasy it, it gets a little messy so take the inspiration but then let the rest
0: go that's what I say about my editorial feedback sometimes I'm like you know yeah. if, like I haven't been wrapped up in this Take the wisdom, leave the rest. Um so I did a podcast with Gail Carson Levine, and she was talking about her research um process a little bit. She was writing something very, very uh the book is a ceiling made of eggshells. And it have you read it?
1: Um I'm familiar with it. I'm like a huge Gail Carson Levine fan. So
0: it's fantastic, but the her research process was really interesting. Um, she hewed very very close to the history like it may as well have happened it's just the person was fictional Um, and it was kind of the late 1400s um, in Spain and she said that she read about um, you know obviously the setting but she also looked at like paintings from the era to get a sense of like little details that she could weave into her scene setting and do you um, do you use anything like that to sort of flesh out a world once you're kind of in creation mode?
1: So I do. I realized I do tend to kind of think of of worlds as uh, artistic styles in a way, and I think that tends to kind of correspond more than an actual era. Um, so I think for for reference, I think my my Arthurian is very much pre-Raphaelite style art. Um, It has that kind of feel to it. And I think um, the the new IA series is um, Rococo. It has that kind of feel to it. When the author understands it, it, it becomes clearer to the reader, even if it's not on the page itself.
0: So here you're talking about more like a tone or a mood. Yeah. How do you reflect that? So you say, okay, Rococo, that's what I have in my head. Um, you're not going to put that on the page, obviously. So how do you go about, is it word choice, syntax, kind of tone of the setting description? I
1: think it's a little bit of everything. I think it's something that you end up internalizing as the creator and it kind of ends up on the page in in unusual or unforeseen ways. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm coming kind of from an acting background, so, um, we used to do these, uh character sheets when we were preparing for, for roles and we would write down, you know, what the character eats for breakfast and like what their favorite song is, stuff that's not, that the audience is never going to know about because it's not in the script, but um, you're able to kind of create this full human character and I think the same is true of a world. If you know that as the creator and as you're writing, um, it kind of naturally comes out in the, in the book.
0: How much of that would you say makes it in rather than being in the drawer?
1: <laughs> uh, well, that's another thing, because I think um, we were talking earlier about, about info dumping and kind of front-loading world-building. You know, I was talking about it as a painting, and I think when I said that you, you start off with a sketch, that includes those guidelines, right? When, when, when artists are, are creating a painting, the first step is to kind of create the guidelines in order, to, uh, in order to kind of see it themselves. And the audience is never going to see those guidelines. Those are just for the artist. Um, and I think the wor- those world-building details that you put it there in that first info dump, um, I think they're necessary for you as the author. And you can kind of keep them in mind and bring them back in throughout. Um, but I think in order for your reader to understand the world, you have to understand the world. And I think that's a big first step.
0: No, that's that's very very useful. Um, and then, <clears throat> so let's say we have um, a historical world, um, whether it's deep history or kind of more recent history. We've had some questions about like how much historical detail do we need in order to sort of make that world come alive and make sense. To modern readers who maybe don't know some of the customs of the world, because you could, again, go down a complete rabbit hole and be like, well, did you know that bidets were so And then, like, it doesn't matter to the story that you found this cool detail about bidets. Um, So, kind of, what is... What is some information you consider to be kind of like on a need-to-understand basis in order to make a historical world relevant to modern readers? That's
1: really tricky because I think so much of it depends on on the readers and on the author. Um, And I think that no two authors are going to approach that the same way. Um, And I think, you know, if you go through the the tunnel of like reading reviews, you'll see that a lot of them, um, even if you look at like a, book that you love, you'll see some of them are like, oh, the world building was too dense. I couldn't get past this. this. I couldn't get into the world building. And then someone else will be like, I couldn't get enough of it. I wanted 10 more pages on the world building. And so I think you have to kind of know that you're never going to make everyone happy. And again, it just comes into getting opinions from readers you trust.
0: So I, I do, I mean... I've always said that it's better to sort of overwrite and then pair back rather than have a really skinny plot, a really skinny character development or world building, because then at least you've done the work and it's just an issue of whether or not you keep it in. It's a lot
1: easier to cut than it is to add.
0: Exactly. So, So you find yourself sometimes overwriting maybe on some of the details and then just sort of, you know, giving it a nice summer haircut.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And would you say uh, a world that's more familiar to us, whether it's recent historical or just, you know, like a setting like London where people feel like they have a sense of the place maybe needs less world building than a world that's totally foreign seeming? Yeah, it's interesting because I've definitely talked to
1: um, to friends of mine who write things like contemporary fiction, and, uh, and there's this myth, I think, that contemporary fiction authors don't have to world build. But they also have to world build. Even if they're writing, you know, the suburbs in Middle America, a lot of people don't know what those suburbs look like. And so I think you have to kind of leave little breadcrumbs that kind of work for everyone, no matter what you're writing. Um, but I think, you know, it is it is a, a difference in uh, creating a world from scratch than and uh and kind of building into real world stuff um and yeah i think you know read there's a reason contemporary books tend to be much 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 shorter than fantasy and a lot of that is world building <laughs> um so you do have the freedom to kind of really dedicate time and space to that and i think the readers when they're picking up a fantasy book or science fiction book or any, or historical book, they really know what they're getting into with that. They're prepared to kind of immerse themselves in that world. And so I think you do have that that freedom.
0: And, and to your point, I mean, the word counts tend to be longer. And we talked uh, in another conversation about kind of reader expectations that people aren't gonna show up to a contemporary lit book with sort of the same mindset as they will to hard science fiction or high fantasy or kind of time travel or historical. Right. What I, what I would love to know is um, to connect it back to character, in terms of worldview, can that also inform world building? To your example of the suburban American kid, maybe, is getting to know the world um, sort of synonymous with getting to know how specific characters see their own world?
1: Oh, absolutely. If you're describing a palace, it's going to look very different to uh to a princess than it would to the, the serving voice sweeping the floors. They're going to have very different views of different spaces. They're going to notice different things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the boys sweeping the floors would probably notice, you know, where dust is going to He like, he's going to notice the, the more of the mechanical things. Whereas, uh, princess who's been born and raised there might not notice most things because she's lived there. She won't even notice, you know, the color of the curtains because she's seen those curtains every day of her life. Whereas someone who's walking in for the first time might be like, oh, those curtains are really unusual. Let me describe them for you. Um, so it's very much a in a, choosing the point of view character is really important when you're, when you're figuring out how to world build, especially if you're working on a book that has uh, multiple POVs. It might be it's a good it's an important question, not just in terms of plot, but in terms of setting, which character is the most interesting character to get that viewpoint from.
0: That's that's a great uh, that's a great point. I usually say it's the character in the scene that has the most uh, ground to cover emotionally. But to your uh, to your idea, it could also be the character uh, through whose eyes the, the setting really pops or there's something really interesting to notice about the setting.
1: And I think, I mean, I you think your 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 point is probably a little more in terms of choosing who has the POV, but uh, I think in choosing what the setting is, because I don't usually know what the setting is until I sit down, unless it's like, oh, they're going to the, the market, so the next scene has to be at the market. But if I'm trying to figure out, like, where a confrontation scene is going to take place, I might not know right away, and that might be something I think about. Um, when I know whose POV it is, trying to figure out where it's where it's most impactful for the character and for the world to kind of set that scene
0: that's a that's a really good idea and then when you revisit a scene let's just say you know we have this like high throne room that that we're familiar with if we go back in you obviously don't need as much scene setting uh what how do you handle uh description of the setting for repeat visits
1: that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm thinking about my first book, um, Ash Princess, because that one really only has a handful of settings. And um it, which was intentional because it's it's designed to feel kind of claustrophobic for the reader because it's very claustrophobic for the character. And I really wanted to convey that. So uh so in that I kind of wanted to emphasize the repetition there. Um and uh, I think that worked. But uh but yeah, I think it's something to think about when you're when you're repeating the settings is uh, thinking about how how it's going to make the reader feel as well and uh, what details they remember, what details they don't remember. Um, because when I was getting other reads for things, they'd be like, oh, I didn't realize there were three doors there, even though it says there were three doors in the room earlier on. Like, you do have to kind of remind readers because they are getting a lot of information. So repeating descriptions I don't think is is bad. And I think it's, again, one of those things where I'm I'm all for putting as much description in earlier drafts as possible and then taking it out as it becomes redundant.
0: And it also must change with, based on the context of what's happening in plot, you know, the throne room could look glittering and full of promise at the beginning and ruined and like a cage at the end.
1: Yeah, they might, they might start noticing things as, as the character's journey progresses, for sure
0: yeah that's that's really interesting. And so you talked a little bit about um acting and the character exercise, sort of fleshing out some of these things that that we may never see. Um, you know, it's kind of like behind the scenes work. Do you do any similar exercises for the world building that you know obviously your process is not to outline? Do you do anything that is a little bit methodical? Uh, in addition?
1: Nothing like active, but I do think that, um, in those early stages, there's a lot of what feels like procrastination that happens. There's a lot of like, you know, making Pinterest boards and like arranging like soundtracks and all those things that, that feel like procrastination, but I don't think they really are. I think they're kind of filling up the gas tank before you embark on this, this, uh, road trip. And I think it's, it's a necessary step. And so I think even if you don't I very rarely will uh, refer back to those things as I write. Um, but I think it helps to kind of understand it even before I start writing.
0: And what are you looking for there visually and in terms of audio? Mood or? I think a lot of it is mood.
1: I think it comes down to mood and just um, just kind of, I think, looking for those sparks of in- inspiration. Um, and I think you never really know where you're going to find them. But I think they, they come back to you at weird times, too, where you're, you know, when you're in the middle of the book and you're working on this scene and you might remember, uh, you might remember the feel of that song might come back to you, or you might remember that random dress that you saw on Instagram and think about that around, yeah, on Instagram and think about that. Or you might like, these things might come back in ways that you didn't quite expect.
0: Yeah. A lot of the creative work is back brain, really. I mean, you never know, like you, I I like this idea of kind of putting as much possible inside the system because you can't like force an idea out. You can't just be like, oh, you know, and then like the, the perfect idea always comes to you. It's not unfortunately that reliable, but things, things that you end up collecting. So how long would you spend, would you, sorry, how long would you say you spend kind of collecting?
1: I think it depends on the book. Really? Um, I think, you know, as, as I mentioned with the Arthurian, I've been working on that off and on for um, 13 years now. So I think it, with that, it takes a lot longer than um, than Ash Princess, which was, you know, I think I started writing that in the fall of 2015 and it came out in spring of 2018. So that was a very that was a much quicker turnaround. Um, and so I think it really depends on the book. Uh, and I think Ash Princess, I started writing almost immediately after I came up with the idea. And so that was one that I very much figured out, like, flying by the seat of my pants, really. Whereas uh, there are other books, um, like, well, there's one I'm working on now that's been, uh, I've been, like, pre-working on it for almost a year. And so I think there's there's stuff like that, too, where I think some books just take a little longer to marinate than others
0: especially when you're trying to tie a lot of ideas together. The Arthurian, if you are comfortable sharing about it, um, can you tell me what drew you to that specific mythology and that specific slant on it? Because one would say that it's a pretty crowded space, right?
1: It is. Um, And especially, I think, recently in the last few years, we've had a lot of Arthurian retellings. um, And... It's and you know it's a very old story, um, but I think this was one that I always I was initially drawn to it because um, I read the the Lady of Shalott poem in high school and I really connected with it as a very depressed teenage girl like it was very um, it seemed very romantic and very like beautiful and and as I got older I kind of you know I reread it in college and I was like huh this poem's kind of messed up like there's this is, this is not a, this is not a nice poem, <laughs> And so I kind of started, you know, interrogating my own feelings about it and the poem itself. And I, I also started reading more um, Arthurian books. Um, and I also, I realized that a lot of them were not very uh, feminist minded, so to say. <laughs> a lot of them are really problematic. <laughs> <laughs> You're being so diplomatic. You, I mean, there they were, like, three women in the Arthurian mythology, really, and none of them really get, like, good stories, honestly. Like, one of them, like, destroys the country by having an affair. The other one's just, like, an evil sorceress who's trying to seduce her brother and then I don't know, the third is I guess is the lady of the lake who just like gives him a sword and that's all she does. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Seducing your brother. You have a dog named Circe. So I just want to I'm Oh, whoa, gonna... oh, no. Sorry, it was Circe like the Greek goddess, but yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> but yeah, um C-I-R-C-U-C-E. Um, Sorry, Cersei. <laughs> but uh, but everyone thinks that. But yeah, no, so I I wanted to kind of uh think about uh the kind of three three women of Arthurian mythology in that regard and kind of give them a, a new story that's not, um, that kind of gives them their own room and their own agency. And luckily now I think there are some more that have, that have kind of that bend to it, but I still felt like, I, I still felt like the specific story hadn't been told. And so I really wanted to get it out there.
0: And that's why you chose uh, an adult audience for that one yes okay
1: and we went back and forth a bit with that um we went we did a little back and forth but I think that the having the main the way the way I was the story that I was telling it made more sense to frame um with them as adults and they're fairly young adults but they are they are early 20s
0: okay and so, do you think this is the approach to take into mythologies that have sort of been done because that 's something you hear in publishing it 's like oh Greek myths or you know this um, a, a story inspired by by this anecdote in the Bible, for example some of these some of these uh, archetypal stories they they loom large they factor large i mean you found. This great entry point into something that that um, has a lot of sort of attention already paid to it how how would you recommend sliding into a, a, a fairly well traveled mythological road
1: um I think it's I think it's a two prong thing that some somehow contradicts it contradicts itself, but I think you have to understand the market and you have to know what else is out there you have to read widely in the market that you're getting into. Um, so you have to know, like, I, I read a lot of Arthurian stuff. I wanted to make sure that I knew, like, what that what that landscape looked like. And I wanted to make sure there was, that my book fit into that landscape. Um, but I also think you have to know that no one's going to tell the story that you're going to tell it. And uh, and so you are bringing something unique to it, just in that regard. And it's always a question of I think no book exists on an island. It's always in conversation with the other books around it. And so you have to figure out what the story you're telling brings to the conversation. And I think that goes beyond even myths. I think um, I remember when when Ash Princess was getting published, a lot of people told me that uh, that fantasy was dead. That YA fantasy was was dying, and I think they they were very wrong about that. It's still clearly going strong, but uh, but yeah, that was something I was told a lot. And I think even then, um, you have to know how what your book is saying in the conversation, because it is a conversation.
0: I think that's. I mean, the two prongs do seem contradictory, but I I think that's exactly right. You have to be aware of what's out there, and you can do your thing. As long as, you know, you're not surprised at the end of writing it by, oh, this already exists and I should have read in this category. The writers who say they can't read because they don't want to pollute the well, I'm like, you kind of got to know what's around you, right? They are trying to be the island, but it's an archipelago
1: and I'll, I'll use an example there, because, like, I mean, I read pretty widely in YA, and we initially, um, there's there are magic stones in Ash Princess, and we initially called them uh, godstones. And um, my agent, when she read it, she was like, you know, I just realized in Ray Carson's book, there are magic stones that are also called godstones. And so, because we were like, oh, we have to change that. But it's one of those things where you just have to be aware, because you have to kind of know what's going on, or you might inadvertently end up kind of having the same story or the same mythological aspect or something. And you just want to make sure that your book, because it it is a very crowded marketplace, uh, fantasy and, and, uh, publishing books in general are very, it's, there's a lot of books out there you can't read all of them, but it helps to kind of understand where your book sits.
0: If you know, you can make a pivot Yes. You know, or if you find out that your godstones did exactly the same thing in your book as, as these godstones did, you could, you know, shift the world building a little, shift the magical logic, and kind of save, save yourself a little potential heat on Goodreads.
1: Exactly, yeah. So that's, I think it's, it's really helpful. I think you do have to read what you're writing to understand how, how because I think you also have to think about your readers, chances are the readers who are reading your book aren't only, aren't, just, aren't only going to be reading your book. They're going to be coming to it with this wealth of knowledge from all these other books. And so you have to kind of understand that as well.
0: Those traitors. <laughs> no, that, that's amazing. Uh, is there anything more for the general portion of our time together that you'd like to say about world building? Did we not cover something you've been dying to share?
1: I can't think of anything off the top of my mind. I feel like your questions were very thorough. Um, But I think it is a lot of kind of internalizing the details and then kind of figuring out what's needed as you go along.
0: I would say that's very, very sage advice from our guest, Laura Sebastian. Uh, This has been Mary Cole and a Story Mastermind Workshop. This was an awesome conversation. And I just, I I, I really want to say I appreciate you doing this in the middle of a move across the ocean.
1: Well, luckily right now I mean there's nothing much to do for the next few days, so this is a nice a nice distraction for me from the the four walls of this place. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Good Story Podcast with your host, Mary Cole. I want to give a huge shout out to everyone at The Good Story Company. You can find us online at goodstorycompany.com. The team is Amy Holland, Amy Wilson, Jenna Van Roy, Kate Elsinger, Kathy Martinolich, Kristen Overman, Mikael Leah, Rhiannon Richardson, and Steve Reese. Also a shout out to our Patreon supporters. And to everyone listening out there, here's to a good story.